Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Brooklyn. Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. I'm Ted, one of the pastors here. It's good to have you with us. We're continuing this morning in our study of John chapter 6, the third and final part of this great chapter. And I ask you guys another question starting out this week. If you can think back over the course of your life, now, not including choice of spouse, but if you can, if you can think back, what is one decision that you made, other than that one I just mentioned, that you're so thankful for today, a choice that has led to so many other things and opportunities and blessings for you personally. Hopefully everyone can think of, of something in that regard. For me, it would, uh, and I've, I've mentioned this before, just the decision as a foolish 18-year-old who didn't do well in high school to join the military, because that provided so many other opportunities uh, with which I wouldn't even be standing here, I am I'm sure. And, uh, and the reason I ask that is to point out one thing, at least for me, that I just did not say. I did not say choosing to follow Jesus Christ, and that was intentional, because I did not make that choice. Yes, at a point, I repented and I believed in him, but he is the one who made that choice and chose me, and that is so important. It's one of the major themes in chapter 6 that we see over and over again, and I have not always believed that as a Christian and as a pastor, and when you don't believe that, when you think man has something to do with salvation, everything else gets out of joint and out of sort. It's such a foundational truth because we're robbing God of his glory, and let me tell you, free will has the potential to be a stumbling idol. It comes from human pride, and and this is really at the crux of where we see those two things come together. On the day that I was saved, there was only one person operating free will, and that was God. And that, my friends, is what this book teaches us. If you want to go another route, like I used to, that's fine, but you're deviating from the Scripture. You're deviating from the Word of God, and that is neither healthy nor recommended. This truth is so, so foundational. So let us think of that as we enter into this passage. But let's also look at this great verse from the prologue. You'll remember this back around Christmas time. And I told you we would see these two truths that we must keep together because we see them here in verses 12 and 13 of John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, uh, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And in those two verses, you see the two truths together, which we try to figure out, and we have to take them both. Man is responsible to repent and believe before holy God, but God is sovereign, and he alone brings people to faith in Christ. We see the two together. And we'll talk more about it as we continue in this passage. Now, you'll see the title screen, if you could put that back up there. Uh, The title screen uh, shows us where we've been the last two weeks in this great chapter, chapter 6. We saw the signs, namely the feeding of the 5,000. Then we saw the heart of his teaching, this discourse in chapter 6, which conforms to the sign, uh, namely uh, his great (laughs) declaration. It's one of those days, right? His great statement. I'm not going to try it a third time. I am the bread of life. And really, Jesus is saying one thing in this chapter. I am the source of eternal salvation. He who takes me in in the fullness of faith 
will have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Uh, and, and so just a, a reminder of those things of where we've been. And one last thing, too, as you read this chapter, again, you see the Old Testament behind the entire thing, from Exodus through Numbers, those 40 years between the Exodus and entering into the Promised Land are in the background of this entire chapter, which now we understand Jesus being both uh, the deliverer, the redeemer, the one who would lead his people into the promised land with the second exodus, the more important exodus that we find ourselves in with this, the new covenant. So here's our big idea for today. Here's kind of the, the sermon in one big sentence because there's so much in this great passage. Today, as Jesus concludes his discourse, he will restate the means of gospel salvation in both clear and metaphoric language while emphasizing the decision that matters most. And you'll remember the title I had up there, The Decision to Follow. The Decision to Follow. And we'll tie that up uh, at the very end. But let's pray one more time and then we'll continue. I actually lied. We'll pray again at some point too. <laughs> Father, we, we come before you and uh, thank you that we can laugh. Thank you for the joy of the Holy Spirit that even in the face of, of brokenness and circumstances in this life, when God's people are together, all of us filled with your spirit, we can laugh, we can encourage, we can sing. Thank you for the sweet time of worship we've had already. I pray that we'll continue even now through the preaching of your word. Take this fallen instrument of yours and use me to handle these great truths, this great treasure of your scripture, uh, and use this time to teach us all, Lord God. We are taught by God because we have God's word and God's spirit is with us. So bless us in that way today. Work in the hearts of each person here today, lost and saved alike, all for your glory and your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Robert read that very important passage from Luke earlier, uh, the parable of what I call the soil types. And the reason I asked him to read that, and I'm not going to make a big deal of it as we go through, but I want you to, we're going to see all four of those soil types represented in this passage today with, with how people handle Jesus' teaching of the gospel. So keep that in mind. Be on the lookout for it as we go through the passage and, and talk about these things. But the, the first decision that we're going to see, if you will, comes from the Jews. And we're going to see here in the heart of this passage, really the lion's share of our time together will be in this first point, this first section, as we see the Jews reject Christ. So take your Bible, and uh, if you haven't already, open it to chapter 6. Before we get in today's passage, look back with me at verses 35, 36, and 37. That was kind of the heart of the discourse last week, and it helps bring us back into the passage today. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall, well, shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So there's the heart of the passage. Uh, and so now as we join, rejoin the text in verse 41, we're going to see the reaction of the Jews, this group of people. Now the subject has changed. You see that right at the beginning of verse 41. It's not the crowd anymore. Most scholars believe this is the same day, probably the Passover, that Saturday, the day after the feeding of the 5,000. And what, what began on the shore of the sea with this crowd of people has now moved into the synagogue. And we have this, this uh, subject, the Jews. It's probably a mixture of the crowd along with people coming to worship as well as the, the rabbis and those who would teach as well. So let's read through verses 41 to 51, and we're going to walk through. I'm not going to read it and then go through it. We're going to read and, and talk about it at the same time. 
So keep your noses in the Bible, and uh, let's go through and see what we discover. So the Jews grumbled. Right there, we think of numbers, right? Right there, we think of the Exodus. What did the Jews do a lot after they left Egypt? They grumbled all the time, right? It just happened over and over. So again, this passage is always pointing us back to, to Exodus. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So we'll stop there. And what's interesting is, you know, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. They're not upset about that. They're not even focused on all that he said about eternal salvation and how he is the way to eternal life. All they got hung up on here is the fact he said that he said he came down from heaven, right? The, the incarnation. And what's interesting, I know I've been guilty about this, you know, kind of the old, the old saying about when you assume you blank, blank, blank. Uh, a little bit of knowledge and a whole lot of assumption can get us into a lot of trouble like it did here. And so that's really interesting for us to see. It reminded me of when I was a kid. Actually, no, recently. Let me back up. I was talking to a friend from high school. <laughs> the kid part comes in in a minute. Just bear with me. Um, I poured bad creamer into my coffee, so I didn't get my second cup this morning. It's starting to show. So a couple years ago, I, I hooked up with a friend from high school on the phone. We talked, this guy named Matt. And he said, hey, you know that guy Scott Storch that we used to go to school with? Uh, he's now like a famous hip-hop producer out in California. And I said, Scott Storch? No. We got in a fight. He came to my fifth grade birthday party. Little bit of knowledge, a whole lot of assumption. There's no way he is a world-famous hip-hop uh, producer. Nonetheless, Google showed me that he was. So there I made that foolish assumption based on a little bit of knowledge. And we see them do that here as well. Of course, Jesus' family relocated to Capernaum, so they knew him, small town, uh, and they missed it all because of that. But look what Jesus says in verse 44. Uh, this is such an important passage. We've already seen this truth in verse 37. We'll see it again uh, in 65. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there we again see uh, the doctrines of grace. We saw that again in verse 37 last week. Uh, it was more implied. Here we see it very explicit, very absolute terms with the no one and the unless. Uh, so very clear that God is completely sovereign in salvation. And then you see the second part of that verse, that beautiful promise, and I will raise him up. This is the third reference to the resurrection of the saints. This is what Paul couldn't get over that he continued to focus on. The man who was more persecuted than anyone I know, and yet had more joy and peace. Why? Because he never forgot about this. He tells us to do it too. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the finish line of your faith, the resurrection of the saints. Such an incredible promise. Look what F.F. Uh, uh, Bruce says here about this. He says, the responsibility of men and women in the matter of coming to Christ is not overlooked, but none at all would come unless divinely persuaded and enabled to do so. Very important truth. But Jesus continues. He kind of explains what he means here uh, by quoting from Isaiah 54. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets. So that's the second panel of the Old Testament. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus, to argue his point, quotes 
from such an important part of the Old Testament. It's the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, which is, contains the servant songs about the Messiah. In that, Isaiah is speaking to the New Jerusalem, those who he prophesizes will come back from Babylonian captivity like 200 years later and telling them about the new covenant and the, and the messenger who would come, the Messiah. And, and that's why it's so important here that Jesus is quoting this because he is the very fulfillment of these words. They're being taught by God right then, right there, and so many of them are missing it. My hope and prayer is that no one in this room is missing it, the fact that we're being taught by God right now. And then as he, as he quotes that, also in verse 45, he gives us clues about how God draws men and women to himself. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And there we see those important um, realities, those things that God and God alone does to bring people to himself, where he, he opens our eyes to our sin, that recognition of who we are truly from birth, that we're dead in our sins, and, and we learn, we repent, we believe, we come to him. So in a very important passage, very important uh, verse for us. And then 46, he, he reminds us that no one has seen the Father. Why does he do that? Why does he say that right there? Because he wants people to, again, look at him as the way, the truth, and the life. By saying what Jesus says here in verse 46, he is highlighting his role as the one and only mediator between God and and man. And Paul reminds us of that here in 1 Timothy 2. He says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So, such an important uh, truth here and what he's doing. He's giving them the fullness of the gospel. And that brings us in verse 47 to the first of two truly, truly statements today. Again, this. This, indeed, this is true, absolute truth. And he says this, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes in him, of course. And then from 48 to 51, he says the subject bread five times, which leads to a sixth subject, which he changes the wording to his flesh. And you'll see that. We're going to jump through really quick in verse 48. There you see the bread of life. And look at 49, the bread of life. Jesus Christ himself is contrasted with the manna that these Jews were asking for moments earlier. You remember last week's passage? They were fine, yeah, feeding the 5,000, whatever. We want the manna from heaven. And while Jesus Christ is the bread of life, he's reminding them that the manna is the bread of death. Look what he says. They ate the manna and they all died. What was the point of those 40 years? It was wandering around so that God's judgment and wrath could be poured out on the unbelieving generation who refused to follow God into the promised land in Numbers 14. Remember the, the 10 unfaithful spies and the two faithful spies? So they were to wander around for 40 years while everyone over 19 dropped dead. So manna, yes, it was provisioned by God, but it's the bread of death associated with every one of those adults dropping dead, and that's what they want. So there's the first. We see, again, that, that reminder, the, the restatement of what he said last week. I am the bread of life. And then in verse 50, the bread that comes down from heaven. And then uh, verse 51, the living bread. Later in that verse, this bread. Uh, and then even above uh, there in 51, the bread. So he refers to that five times. 
saying the same exact thing, trying to point them to himself as the one and only means of eternal life. And then at the end of verse 51, he does something interesting, which feeds into the the next section we'll see. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. How do you think the Jews are going to handle that? We're going to see here in a few moments. They didn't like that too much. And when you see flesh there, again, it's the word sarks. It's a very strong word. Uh, It's not used the same way that Paul uses it in his letters, where it's typically referring to our sinful flesh. We should go back to the prologue where, uh, again, the great passage in verse 14, uh, Jesus came down uh, into the flesh. And and that idea, the, the incarnation of God becoming man. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at that here in a few moments. But before we do, let's look at a few application points that we want to pick up on from this section. Uh, one of the things that I love in here is as they're grumbling, as they're arguing about what he's teaching, he says to them right there in the midst of that, hey, that's not how it works. Arguing and debating about the gospel doesn't save people. The Father saves people. And that's an important lesson for us as we go and do evangelism, as we share the gospel with our friends. It's so easy to get into an argument. It's so easy to debate. I've been guilty of it with some of my Catholic family, and that's not how God works. God draws people, and that's so important to remember. Again, we need to share the gospel, but we need to do it in love and try to not take the bait to get into those heated arguments and debates with people about it. So I think there's an application that we can pull out and extract there. And as you're sharing the gospel, the goal should be to get people into the word of God themselves, to encourage them, to to give them scripture, to give them a New Testament, to have them read the gospel. Old Testament too, it's all God's word, but to read his word for themselves so that they can recognize and repent uh, as well. And at a very base level, I can tell you from experience, I'm sure some of you can as well, when God begins to draw you to himself, a very simple thing that happens that we as Christians should be on the lookout for is people develop an appreciation, a true appreciation for who God is for the first time ever. That's what happens, and that's what we should be looking for, to see God working because we want to be partners with him uh, in bringing people to faith in Christ. Second thing I want us to pick up on from this first section and we, we almost missed it. And in verse 51, just that reminder that the bread of life that Jesus is giving is for the life of the world. Keep in mind this mission is global for all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike. And John continually points our attention back to the world. If you think of all the way back in chapter 1, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who dies for the world. John 3.16, of course, that great verse uh, we've got to keep the global vision uh, in mind. And then one last thing I want to say before we move on. We know that uh, coming up, we got chapter 11 in John with the raising of Lazarus and how that chapter is all about the resurrection of Christ. It's pointing us and preparing us for the resurrection of Christ. Well, just as chapter 11 is to the resurrection, chapter 6 is to the crucifixion. It's preparing us for Jesus dying on the cross. And we're going to see that more vividly as we continue in this next section. So read with me verses 52 through 59 as we continue in this larger section of the Jews rejecting Jesus. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the, father, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the father ate and, fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So we see the second truly, truly statement, and we see it come in response to the Jews disputing and grumbling once more. This time they got hung up on that last word that he said in verse 51, my flesh. Very offensive to them. And they're wondering, How, what's he talking about? What does he mean by that? And so Jesus, as he does several times in this chapter, takes something that offended them, amplifies it even more, and then offends them beyond where they even were. And we see that in the very next verse, verse 53, with the second truly, truly statement. I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. Can you imagine these Jews, especially when he adds the part about drinking blood, because that was completely against the Mosaic, Mosaic law, drinking even an animal's blood, much less another human being's. Now, scholars believe, the ones I studied this week, that these Jewish opponents didn't really believe Jesus was talking about cannibalism. Okay? They knew he was being figurative, but nonetheless, even by this figurative language, it was highly Highly offensive. So what is Jesus teaching here? The same thing he's been teaching the entire chapter. He's just using a very vivid and strong language to make his point at what he's talking about with faith. As we talked about last week, it's not some easy believism, some, some passing faith. Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. But it's all in. It's taking Christ and appropriate, appropriating him by faith and bringing him into our most inner being. That's what he's trying to show us. In fact, one easy way to understand this truly, truly statement is to look at the one we just read a few verses before. And I put them both on the screen for you to make it easy. There are the two truly, truly passages, statements that he said, and they're saying the exact same thing. The exact one crystal clear, one hidden in metaphoric language, but the same thing, again, that he's been saying since we began this discourse last week. So important. And one historical uh, aspect to bring in, I think, I think we have to mention it really quickly. We don't have much time to talk about it. But this passage, many Christians through the history of the church have foolishly used this passage to build their doc doctrine for how they do the Lord's Supper, the Roman Catholic Church being um, the most notorious for it. And they believe that uh, because John, John does not include the institution of the Lord's Supper in the upper room like the other three Gospels do, they believe that John's doing it right here, that Jesus is actually instituting the New Covenant Lord's Supper at this moment, right? And that, my friends, is not what is happening. Jesus is not, think about it, who's he with? He's with a bunch of people who, who hate him, his opponents. He's with, with a bunch of lukewarm disciples who are about to defect which we'll see here in a few moments, and he's with his 12 disciples who are still kind of trying to get it. Why would he institute the Lord's Supper here? No, that doesn't happen till the upper room. He's teaching how to get saved here, all right? Now, does John, in writing this, want us who are already saved to make the connection to the Lord's Supper in that time of, 
of worship by remembrance? Yes, absolutely. But this is not the institution of uh, the Lord's Supper. And just in case you don't know, what the Roman Catholic Church believes is that every time they take the Eucharist, so they, they take of the bread and the wine, they're re-sacrificing Jesus on the cross. That's why they have a crucifix, and we have an empty cross. Because they, every Mass, they're literally, in their minds, re-sacrificing Jesus. And then if you do not take that, you'll lose your salvation. It's a way to, to maintain your status as a saved person. Even as a kid, I still remember the priest would take the bread and the wine and put it into this box behind him. I can't remember what the box is called. I just call it the magic box. Because when it came out... It was all of a sudden, it wasn't bread and wine. Yeah, it still looked like it, but it really, they really 100% believe it's not bread and wine. It's literally the flesh and blood of Jesus. And they build that from foolishly from this passage. So I got to mention that as we continue, but now we've got to move on. And we're going to move on here pretty quickly. Uh, as we rejoin the text here uh, in verse 54, he now is going to refer to this feeding on himself several times. Times And one thing I want to point out, a little Greek here uh, that I've learned and been reminded of, is each time he refers to eating or drinking or feeding, it's in, it's in what's called the aorist tense. And why, why that's important is this, because the aorist tense is something that happens in the past, but it's a one-time thing that never has to be repeated again. It's a once-for-all type idea, and that's very significant because what he's referring to here is that salvation time where we believe, we repent and believe in Jesus. It's once-for-all. It doesn't have to be repeated like so many of the false Christians might teach, and that's really important as we continue. But also, I've put uh, some of the uh, things here up on the screen for time's sake. Every time he mentions between verses 53 and 58, feeding upon him, there's some eternal Benefit, and I've consolidated them all and put them on the slide here uh, for you as we uh, as we look back at this passage. So look at this up on the screen. For those who partake of Christ, who believe in Christ, look at all that the passage here says that we have. And I want us to see this because we get hung up on the eating and drinking, the blood and all that stuff. But look what we have in Christ. We will have li- we have life in you. So we have that life in us. Uh, Those who partake in Christ have eternal life and will be raised. The fourth time in this passage, we see a reference to the resurrection of the saints. How encouraging. Uh, Those who partake abide in Jesus. And not only that, he abides in us. Keep that in mind. Remember that because when we get to chapter 15, uh, he says the word abide like seven or eight times. It's all about this beautiful, mysterious relationship that we have with the triune Godhead, this intimate relationship. And the word abide literally means remains. Again, permanence, remains. In fact, here is a passage from uh, 1 John 2. Uh, John writes this a little bit later and, and, and brings this truth out for us. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, if, big if, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. What a beautiful picture for us. Now, going back to that last slide, we have a couple more things to see here. Uh, Those who partake in Christ will live because of the Father and the Son. Again, that perfect joint mission of the two members of the Godhead, actually all three, as we'll, we'll see the Spirit mentioned here in a little bit. And then finally, we will live for. Ever. Friends, this is encouraging for those of us who are saved. This is what we have in Christ. This is the secret 
to dealing with the broken circumstances. The truth is we don't get our best life now. We get our best life later. And one of the disciplines that Paul helps us to understand that Jesus is pointing us here to is that as we travel through the brokenness of life, the key to persevering through it with joy and with peace is keeping our eyes focused on the finish line. He gives it to us in the armor of God too. It's the helmet of our salvation. It is so important, so crucial, and so undertaught in the church uh, today. Unless you're here because I mention it like every week because it's that important in my own life. So, all right, some more application and then we'll get to the second two really quickly, I promise. Uh, Look at this passage on the screen. This passage came to my mind several times as I was studying this week, and I actually want us to read this together from Galatians 2.20. Let's read this together. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a beautiful passage. And the second thing I want to remember before we move on is this, in terms of application, it's so important that we as believers understand that this gospel that we're learning for, uh, Jesus Christ as the bread of life, is not just for the day of salvation. It's for every day. We need continual sustenance and refreshment in Christ. How does that come? That comes by what the reformers call the ordinary means of grace participation in a local church uh, with the word of God being first and foremost. That comes in the preaching of the word of God. That comes as we study the word of God. That comes as we gather together in missional communities and talk about and apply the word of God. Also, the Lord's Supper, which we have the opportunity to partake in today, uh, which is going to be great, especially with this passage. But the Lord's Supper, also very important means of grace and worship in uh, coming together. But the focus of these, mean, these ordinary means of grace is corporate. And that's so important for us. We, we cannot blow off or minimize the importance of being with our church family each and every week. Granted, I understand things come up. Uh, we can't always be here on Sundays or make things during the week. But friends, make these opportunities a priority in your life. They're so important to that refreshment, that, that uh, sustenance that we all need each and every day. So we've seen the Jews reject uh, as now the discourse comes to an end. And real quickly, we're going to see two more decisions that are made, two more reactions. And the first one is going to be by this larger group called the disciples. And we're going to see this group of disciples defect from Christ, uh, defect from Christ. Read with me verses 60 through 65. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. It's funny, one of the paraphrases says, this is too much to stomach, which is kind of ironic with the whole flesh and blood thing. This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said this, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to, the, to me unless it is granted him by the Father. One of the things that's great about this entire chapter 
Uh, if you've ever studied preaching, some of you have been in seminary, there's four things that you want to do in a passage when it comes to preaching the Word of God expositionally. You want to explain the passage, you want to argue the passage, you want to illustrate the passage, and finally, very important, you want to apply the passage. And Jesus, as a master teacher, does all four of those things in this passage. And here we're going to start to see him apply his teaching both to this large group of disciples and eventually the 12 disciples. And so as we look back at the passage, this group of disciples, probably a lot of these people were folks that participated in the feeding of the 5,000 the day before. So he's probably a bunch of new people who are like, yeah, I'm going to follow you. Maybe some others who had been with him for a little while, but it's this larger group. It's not the 12 disciples. We know that because we'll see them here in a moment. They're also grumbling, but one difference that I noticed the Jews were grumbling out in the open, like opposing Jesus to his face. They're grumbling in their own hearts and maybe even in a couple private conversations like, man, this teacher's loony. Can you believe him? But look at what John reminds us of, and we see this like three or four times in chapter 6, this omniscient ability that Jesus has. Jesus knowing in himself, he knew their hearts, asked them this question, which gets right to the heart of the matter. And he refers to his ascension. Uh, Because all he's been talking about in chapter 6 is the reality of the incarnation, about him coming to earth, about him becoming man, of the word of God taking on flesh. And he says, man, if you can't handle this, you can't handle me actually ascending back to where I was before. He's, He's kind of pointing to the future events of the ascension. Now, we could either think of the ascension itself in Acts 1, or we could think of the unbreakable chain of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension uh, and he's really just pointing, and pointing to the cross as the beginning of that. Uh, it, it could be either. Because back in John 3, he also referred to the ascension and then immediately to the lifting up of himself on the cross. But nonetheless, he then leads to such a, a very important theological truth, which fits perfectly in the, the sovereignty of God's subject matter we see in this whole chapter. He tells us this, it is the Spirit who gives life. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who gives life, the third person of the Trinity that, that the Father and Son use to apply this glorious salvation to those who are lost. And then to make it emphatic, he says the negative right behind it. The flesh, human flesh, is of no avail. Human flesh does no good. Human flesh cannot bring about salvation. And then he tells us something also very important. The words that he speaks are spirit and life. It's almost as if we have to have, we have to know that language. Has anyone ever been in another culture and you don't understand the language? And maybe if you got a chance to preach, someone has to interpret for you. Uh, we have to have the language. We have to know the language of the spirit. And that does not come until God causes us to be born again. This might, should remind you of the woman at the well where Jesus says that God desires worshipers who worship in spirit And in truth, very similar thing here. And so we have to have that to be able to understand the gospel, to be able to respond to the gospel. And I believe what happens when God does this, he turns the lights on. He restores the ability for us to choose, to exercise free will, and to then come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And then finally, as we get to verse 65 in this section, we see repeated now for the third time in just a few passages, that great truth. He says, this is why I knew you guys were, would, uh, would reject me. And there's even one who will betray. And this is why I told you that no one can come to me 
unless it is granted him by the Father. Almost word-for-word repetition uh, of verse 44. Look what Leon Morris reminds us of with this. He says, Unbelief is to be expected apart from a divine miracle. It is impossible for anyone to come to Christ unless the Father gives the grace to do. Do so. Left to themselves, sinners prefer sin. What a stark reminder for us here today. A couple applications for us as we get to the conclusion of this time. Question, have you ever signed up for something not fully understanding what you were getting into until it was too late? Maybe a timeshare, right? Something like that. Maybe a first week of boot camp. I don't know. That's kind of the experience that these disciples had. They were with Jesus for the wrong reasons. They saw Jesus as a means to an end, not an end in themselves. And one of the things we have to keep in mind here is Jesus in this whole chapter had an opportunity to have like the biggest megachurch in Israel, five to 15,000 people at one time. And by the end, he might just be left with 12 people, and that was just fine. Jesus did not water down his teaching to make it palatable for people for the sake of numbers. And that's so important for us, especially in our context. The temptation is always there to compromise, but we can never compromise. We have to continue to hold to the truth of God's word, to teach and encourage one another with the truth of God's word, and not cater to numbers or the attractional components, the fully attractional components of church ministry. Second thing, we see the two soil types here. Both you, you have the uh, the rocky soil and the soil where they grew up with the thorns. And the two things that I believe are represented in this group who defect uh, are, one, the persecution and trouble. That's what the rocky soil was, that as soon as persecution and trouble comes, you don't have a deep root, so you fall away. And then the thorns were the desires of life, when people desire things of this world more than the things of God. And so we see that happening here. So important for us to examine our own hearts. And you'll see this passage up on the screen that uh, helps us to do that as Paul reminds us, examine yourselves to see where you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So there's nothing wrong if there's any doubt with examining ourselves and seeing where we're at. And then the final uh, application here for this point is just in terms of evangelism. One reminder, I've said this many times, we as God's children cannot save anybody, all right? Only God can save. Now, we're tools that he desires to use, but we cannot save. But there is something we can do that should scare us to death. We can make a false convert. We can make a false convert. So remember that as you go to share the gospel and, and, and lead people to Christ. And just a reminder, too, of our of what we're doing in lieu of Easter, finding that one person in our life from our different worlds that God would have us to invite here on Easter Sunday, April 21st. So continue to be working towards that as well. And finally, and really quickly, we'll see the final decision. The 12 believe in Christ. And we'll pick up in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So there we see the disciples defect. And this causes Jesus to ask the 12 a question. So he asked them, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter had answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, 
for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So he asked them this question. The way he asks it expects loyalty, and loyalty he gets from who else but Simon Peter, the one uh, who, who seems to jump out and say things. And here he says that great confession. This should remind you of, of what we see in Matthew chapter 16 at Caesarea Philippi, which probably happened very close to these events. But here he makes that great question. And I love what he says. Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else? No one else has the words of eternal life. Here's a psalm that came to my mind that I think will benefit us to read. Psalm 73. Whom have I, ha- whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Peter makes that great confession to the Lord. And and again, by saying what he says here, that, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. He understands what Jesus was trying to tell the disciples, that you can only come to me if you have spirit and truth, if you understand these truths. And by God's grace, he understands them. And then look how, look what he says to Jesus. This is, don't miss this in verse 69. He calls Jesus the Holy One of God. That is a divine title if there ever has been one. Those words are only uttered by one other person in all the New Testament, and that was the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. That demon knew exactly who Jesus was, the Son of God. And here Peter makes that same confession, the Holy One. Of God, And then finally, verse 70, again, more uh, sovereignty of God here as Jesus says, did I not choose you, the 12? And then he does something that we don't expect. He talks about uh, Judas, a little prophecy here, and yet one of you is a devil. And then he spoke of Judas, as John tells us with that editorial comment. And why does he mention that? Because if he didn't, someone might say, oh, you say you chose them, and yet one of them's going to betray you. Well, he knows full well one of them's going to betray him. And what's interesting is Judas didn't hightail it out of there with the rest of the disciples who defected. Why is that? Well, I'll let you guys answer the question. As I've asked before, who is the most important of the original 12 disciples? Peter? John? Judas? The most important. Because he was the one who would betray him and bring about the events that would lead to salvation being possible for you and for I. Even in his sovereignty, God chooses uh, someone like Judas to be part of the plan of bringing about salvation. Such an important truth that we have to see and recognize in this passage. And friends, that brings us to the conclusion of this. But there's one thing that we have to point out here. We've seen the decisions of the Jews the disciples, the 12, but there's one decision that matters more than any other decision, and I think you know what it is because we've seen it throughout this chapter. It is the decision of God the Father to draw us to himself, to initiate salvation according to his sovereign grace and his sovereign love. And that, my friends, going back to the very title of this, is the decision that matters most, the decision to follow Christ. But nonetheless... Man is responsible to repent and believe. So there is nothing wrong with us going to our friends and our neighbors, and we should, and we should share the gospel with them, and we should call them to repentance and faith. We don't know who God has chosen. We assume everyone is, and we share with everyone we have opportunity. We pray for them 
to recognize, repent, and believe. So some final application here, and then we're going to transition into the Lord's Supper. Back to the words of eternal life. Again, this is just a reminder. That's the gospel. Words of eternal life is a beautiful description by Peter of the gospel. Friends, we have to get the truth of God's word into people's hands. Uh, we need to have them read it for themselves. So if you're sharing the gospel with someone, if you're in an evangelistic relationship, push the Bible in front of them. Have them read the words themselves. That's where the power is. Uh, Read it to them as you're sharing. Lace your testimonies. We've talked about sharing your story. It's great to share your story, but if you don't share God's word in your story, it's not evangelism. Lace your testimonies with God's word. Show them scriptures that God used back when he saved you or or, or affirmed you in your salvation. And then also invite people to where you know God's word is going to be talked about and discussed. It could be your missional community. It should be your missional community family meals or maybe some of the third spaces things that we do. Uh, Invite them here on Sunday mornings as well to be part of worship where they're going to hear that. And not only where the word of God is discussed, but where the word of God is celebrated as we're about to celebrate right now with the Lord's Supper. And how fitting that this passage fell on a fourth Sunday when we would be taking the supper. Look with me at this last passage on the screen. This comes from 1 Corinthians uh, 10. Paul says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ?